reading from Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, Kent. So if you've, if you've taken to loving an old salt hamburger, you can thank Kent for that, because he's, he's one of the guys. Anybody? Like, it's like, I don't need to eat anywhere else. I'll just have old salt. <laughs> Not you guys? Serious? It's the, the best. So I was talking to my friend Father Moses this week, who is an Orthodox priest in Billings, and we were talking just about different things, and actually we were talking about, in particular, the, the Feast of Theophany, which we're going to celebrate in January, and... He made this comment where he said, Adam, if you really want to understand Orthodox theology, what you have to do is read the hymns because our theology is really in our music. And it just struck me, David and Deidre, thanks so much for those tunes because I think Christmas is a great representation of that and so is your set this morning of just this, uh, the, how full our, our Christmas music is as we try to think about what does it mean to follow Jesus. So Merry Christmas, by the way, if this is your last gathering with us before uh, you head off on the road or wherever it is you're going for Christmas. Merry Christmas, thanks for being a part of this. Uh, if you've not been with us for a while, we've been in this Advent series and we've been following, what would be one way to call it is the lectionary, which are these like, here's these daily and weekly readings that, you know, going back, some would say as far as the sixth century that the church has been doing this thing where they're like curating certain readings for certain seasons. And yet, Romans 1 was probably not one that you had in mind when you thought about Christmas. Anybody have that thought of like Paul's opening to this letter of Romans? It's a little bit weird. It caught me off guard. I do think it lends itself to a particular question that for me personally, it took me a while to get inside of and make sense of. And it's a question I want to ask this morning. I don't feel like I have a lot to say this morning. There's this single question, but it's a question that I think on the one hand, it's a question that speaks to where I've been the last couple of years uh, to some extent, where our, our, our team has been, our staff, us as a community, just I think it speaks to a lot of things that's been going on just culturally and especially within just the life of faith in general. Although we always want to operate on the assumption that not everyone here is part of that and we want this to be a safe place for you as well. And, and so I think for you this morning, you're, you're kind of getting to look in the window of like, what is this thing called Christianity? What is this thing called the church? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Because as we wrap up Advent, it strikes me that the, uh, the people who laid out these readings, it gets a little intense towards the end. And that's what makes me nervous about this question. I think it's a question I've asked in other seasons of my own adult faith life, but oftentimes those lend themselves to a, a kind of, uh, I don't know, arrogance, uh, uh, maybe, maybe even an intensity that's not becoming of God. I think sometimes it leads itself to a self-righteousness and all kinds of things that are ugly. Uh, if, if you're deeply wounded by the church. I think this question I want to ask is, is probably one of the roots of that wounding where someone was asking the question and yet things went terribly wrong. And yet I think the other side of it is if we don't ask this question, uh, there's still pitfalls. There's still dangers. There's still 
uh, pain that can happen. It's the proverbial, like there's ditches on both sides of the road. And, and so somehow we have to figure out, like, how, how do we ask the question and avoid this ditch? Because if we don't ask the question, then it seems more likely we end up in this ditch. And yet this week, as I was just processing and trying to make sense of this, and it's Christmas week, and we've all got lots going on, and so do I, and there's this, this like, okay, Lord, how, how do we do justice to what it is that Paul is doing in Romans? It strikes me that this, this question, it's not just a Jesus question. It's not just a church question. It's not just a Christian question. Like, it's kind of a life question, I mean, I found myself this week, I was talking to, to one mom who I know played some college basketball and she was describing her 11-year-old who made the comment to, after watching her play some adult league, like, oh man, she, she like really loves basketball now. And she loved it before, but watching her mom kind of helped. And so here was what this kind of scenario that played out in my head is, head is, I think this question is relevant when an 11-year-old girl says to their mom, hey mom, I, I think I want to play college basketball someday. Because every parent in this room, every person in this room knows that there's several ways that a person could respond to an 11-year-old saying that. Like one way to respond would be to go, well, uh, I'm 5'4 and your dad's 5'5, so let's talk about dance. <laughs> that, that, that would be one approach. Uh, uh, another approach would be to go easy and just kind of leave it at that. No coaching, no assistance, just like, oh yeah, this kind of entitled approach. And yet, I hope we can agree that like, the thread the needle perfect response is somewhere in the middle that's age appropriate and it doesn't crush hopes and dreams. It, it stays open to the reality of those. And at the same time, it, it doesn't misrepresent by, by saying that there won't be sacrifice involved, but somehow in the middle, it communicates like, okay, so like, what does an 11-year-old need to know uh, about how to go about accomplishing that goal? And, and how, how do I accurately represent this will take sacrifice and this will take commitment and this will require you doing certain things when your friends are doing other things? And, and how do I answer an 11-year-old that way and, it's, and that's different than how I would answer a 13-year-old versus a 16-year-old? And yet, at the same time, how do I not convey that it's just like, well, if you want to be one, you can because that's the world we live in? Or, or, or another way to think of it is uh, maybe this is you. You watch David play guitar and you go... I want to play guitar like that. And maybe you say that to your wife or your husband uh, or, or your friend or your roommate when you leave here and you go to lunch. And it's like, I want to play guitar like that. And again, there's a whole bunch of ways to respond to that. One would be like, well, you don't even own a guitar, you idiot. <laughs> like that, that would be one way. Uh, the, the other would be to go like, well, he's not even that good. You could do that tomorrow. <laughs> but again, somewhere in the middle depending on age and season of life and myriad other factors, there would be a, a healthy conversation about like that, that involves time and dedication and sacrifice and you'll have to own a guitar and, and you'll probably be practicing when other people are watching Netflix and you might have to hire a coach. There's, there's all these different things that are required. Or, or think of, there's so many of you around here, which is such a blessing and I think in many ways such a testament to the culture that Gay has created in the nursery of like there's just so many of you young marrieds with little tiny babies. And I, I found myself this week thinking about just Imagine the couple uh, looking at any one, there's a bunch of you in this room too that are two, three decades into marriage and you fought for it and you have a great one and imagine one of these young couples uh, saying to one of these stellar couples like, we want to have a marriage like you someday. And again, there's lots of ways that that could be responded. First one would be like, well, I've met your wife, it's not possible. <laughs> and that, that's, that's 
That's within the realm of possibility. It could also work the other way around. It could be the husband. Uh, the, the, the other one would be to go like, oh, marriage is easy, which I don't know who would say that, but that's a possibility. And then there's this obvious middle ground where we have conversation that are honest and encouraging but also challenging that talks about the sacrifice but also the opportunity somewhere in the middle. I think, I hope, this question this morning lands there. And I, I think that it's the type of question that'll land different for each one of us. If you're a couple years into following Jesus, it probably has one, sets of meaning, one set of meaning. And if, if you're a couple decades in, it'll have more. And if you're just considering it, uh, the Spirit of God as I experience him will, will have the grace to kind of just help it be appropriate to you're just considering it. But here's the question that I think Romans 1, go ahead, Holly, to that next slide, I think begs us to consider. And it's just this question of how rigorous is this thing called the Christian life? Like how much effort is it supposed to take? How hard is it? How much sacrifice is it supposed to be re- to, to require? I think I spent the first year, my, the first 10 or so years of my following Jesus convinced that it's hard and it takes a lot of work. I think I spent the next decade trying to convince myself and others that it's actually easy, that it doesn't take much work at all. I hope that in this decade to live somewhere in between where we can somehow speak to like, no, this, you, you, you can't just stick this landing without trying. Like, this takes work and effort and yet, again, it's going to be season and age appropriate. And here's where this comes from for me and, you know, as we think about Advent and everything that we've talked about thus far, I start to see the genius of why Romans 1 was placed in the fourth week of Advent. Listen again to Paul and just listen to how he starts this letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I mean, there's some powerful ideas in there. A servant of Jesus Christ. I don't think I've ever referred to myself as that in an introduction to anybody. Called to be an apostle. So now he's just not just referencing himself, but his just bigger sense of meaning in the world. Set apart. Now it's even stronger language. Set apart for the gospel of God. And here's the question that kind of cracked the egg for me in my own times way back this summer when I was getting ready for Advent. And it's just this. Was, was, was following Jesus like something else Paul did? Or had it become like the core of, of who he is? Like, was it just another interest he had? Or are we, are we meeting Paul at this, like, high point of his life where this was, like, at the center of his self-understanding? And you can see then where this question gets scary. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to portray faith as something that you're only legit if it's the only thing you think about and the only thing you care about and the only interest you have. I think it can become that, but I think that's the key. It has to, it becomes that over time. But I don't know about you, I also don't want to convey faith, nor do I understand it to be something that's easy. That's as simple as a card you carry in your wallet or a designation you made in some kind of a service somewhere. That it's somewhere in between and it's probably more like playing the guitar like David Casey or or a college basketball player or, or a couple with a great marriage. It's probably more like that than either of these other two, isn't it? Something that takes work dedication, investment, but that's where it gets scary to represent because we've, we've started a movement on this idea of let's make Jesus as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. And I think we're a part of a huge tradition that, that embraces that and I'm proud of that. And yet how, how do we keep that from becoming this ditch over here or 
that one over there? It's a scary question. I think of it like this. Can you think of something that you said yes to, some commitment that you made, uh, that at the time when you said yes, you had no idea how hard that would be? So can you think of something where, where you signed up for it, and in hindsight, you were oblivious to the task at hand? And now, can, can, you, can you think of something that not only checks those boxes, but also when you look back, you wouldn't undo it if you could? So something extraordinarily difficult, harder than you intended to sign up for, you might not even wish it on your, on your biggest enemy, and you wouldn't undo it if you could. Like, like maybe for you, it was, a, it was an academic thing. You had this desire to get some kind of a degree. You, get, you had this desire to get some kind of training. You had this desire to be the valedictorian or something along those lines. And there was this like entry-level desire, stated desire, stated goal. And then there was like the reality of graduating as an RN. And the disconnect of like, if, I, if I'd have known, I don't know if I'd have signed up for it. Can you think of something that falls on those lines? Maybe it was academic. Uh, m- maybe it was athletic. And this speaks to the college basketball thing. Like you, you once were just a kid with a soccer ball and then that desire grew and you wanted to be a varsity soccer player or you wanted to be a college soccer player and you look back now and there's stuff that you didn't do when your other friends were because you, you, you were focused on that. Maybe you look back now and you have nagging injuries and, and pains in your knees that you recognize that these are a result of that. Maybe it was relational. This might be the easiest one, I think, to relate it to. I'm, I'm, sometimes I feel bad when married people talk about marriage in front of people who aren't married because they're like, I'm sure the single people are like, why would anybody do that? Because we always use this language of hard and all this stuff. But, but in many ways, marriage is, is one of the prime examples of this, isn't it? Like, did you have any idea how, how, how much refining of you would have to happen to have a good marriage? Now, would you undo it? And I understand sometimes there are reasons to undo it. I'm not trying to strike shame on divorce. But at the same time, probably many of you are in marriage are like, yeah, this has been the best thing that's ever happened to me and I, uh, I love my spouse and it's hard. This is parenting, right? Like, w- would you ever, Roy, sign up to be a parent again if you knew? <laughs> I knew I could count on you for this one. This is parenting, right? And sometimes I feel bad for our kids when we talk about how hard it is. Like, geez, maybe I'll exit stage left. Cause, but no, it, it's worth it. But is there anything more difficult in the world? I, not that I've figured out yet. My question, my point is this. What if that is, is kind of what the Christian life is like? That, that, that there is this God who welcomes us and woos us, who compels us to feel valued and loved, all very important things. But what if uh, the, the Christian life like fully cooked, like fully worked out, in the end becomes this extraordinarily at times difficult thing? And I wonder if sometimes people like me in places like this have lost sight of the, the rigor required. Like look at, look at again what Paul says there. Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then let's keep going. So why? why? Like, 
Why does it have to get more difficult? Why does God do it this way? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What's going on there? These are the types of words that you can easily read and just your eyes just kind of glaze over. What's he doing here? As best I can tell, he's referencing that this point in time that he's living in, this little speck of land that he's standing on, is a part of this bigger story of God and God's commitment to rescuing his good creation that understood well that the Jesus story, the God story, is a God who loved creation, who in the Trinity invites people into this relationship of love, but that's just not like a disembodied soul thing. This God loves creation. It went terribly wrong, got all kinds of messed up, and this God didn't kick the dirt and start over. He got in the dirt and committed himself to putting it back together, to bringing it back to rights. We still haven't answered the question, though, then why does it get more difficult? But I think the first reflection is, well, it has been for God. And whatever it means to be God, apparently easy isn't part of that definition. What if part of what God does is welcomes us into that struggle with him, and then he keeps going? Verse 3, the gospel concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's he saying? Well, at least in part, he's saying this new creation, this new story, day one was Jesus' resurrection. Like, it started, and I get to be a part of this. But why then does God constantly do it this way? Why does it have to be more hard? And this is where... For, for me, I, I go back to the very beginning of the story. How does the story start? A God who sends his spirit into the darkness. A God who, who brings about creation. So this God loves creation. Very unique in the ancient world. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't dislike matter and the material. He actually created it and loves it. He's going to redeem it. But what's the plan from the very beginning? Then God said... Let us make humans in our image. And let's, let's make them to have dominion over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over all the things that creep across the ground. And so God created people in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image. What's the story? Isn't it a God who wants to live with, to work through? It's always been about this partnership. Why? I don't know that I can take it any further than that personally, but somehow the story has always been the story of Emmanuel, a God who wants to be with. And somehow in his putting together, putting back together creation, he, he's not been like the over-functioning parent or the over-controlling leader. He doesn't just reach over and do it in spite of people. He's always chose to do it with us in partnership with. Like, think of Joseph. And this is, for me, where the story gets a little more encouraging. Like, we're, we're, it's Christmas. Think of the story of Joseph. I, I don't know if you're doing uh, the verse memory stuff with us every month. We do have these cards up here for you to put on your rearview mirror or whatever. And, and this month's was a little, more, uh, a little less personal. But there's some intention behind it. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. But what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for he will save their people from their sins. Who is Joseph? 
And I think the question for me that's helpful is, who is Paul? Who is Mary is another way we could ask this question. Another very important person on Christmas. Were they these freaks of nature who at three years old or zero days old or seven years old like signed up to be these robust followers of Jesus? Or was Joseph just another five-year-old in Sunday school, another five-year-old in synagogue, and he felt God prompt him and he said yes? And he felt God prompt him again and he said yes. And he felt God prompt him again and he said yes. And pretty soon he's an adolescent and he just slowly but surely kept saying yes. Or how about the Apostle Paul? And did, did Paul sign up to, to pay the sacrifice that he did uh, to the extent that he did when he was three or five or seven? Or was he just an incrementalist? Just, just did the next right thing and the next right thing and the next right thing and pretty soon he, he finds people revering him as the great Paul, Saint Paul. Listen to how Paul finishes this salutation or this introduction. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. I wonder if one of the questions that, especially the last 500 years of church history, if not the last 2000s, 2000, if one of the questions we all have to, let's just stay there for a second, Holly, on that verse. If one of the questions that we all have to sit with is who is called to be a saint? without trivializing those men and women who have paid much and are far more godly than most of us, myself included, will ever be. Like, is it this, like, hyper-elite group? Or is it all of us? Like, who's called to be a saint? How, how rigorous is this thing called the Christian life? And I think Advent's this great season to go, like, how much are you willing to give it? And... How much is God asking you to give it right now? Like, what's, what's the next step? There's this great story that Jesus tells. Many of you will be familiar with it. It's about two brothers, and one of the brothers, pretty early in life, takes his inheritance and runs off to the foreign land and has lots of fun and blows lots of money and finds himself broken and wanting to go back home. And he wonders if he, when he goes home if his dad will even take him back because in this culture uh, he, he probably shouldn't or normally wouldn't. And this son, who we commonly recall the, the prodigal, he does go back, and much to his astonishment, not only does the dad welcome him back, the dad spent every day looking on the horizon to see if he was on his way back, and when he saw his son, he broke more convention by heading off into a sprint to go greet his son. And what followed was partying, celebrating. They celebrated like it was Passover or something as they celebrated, this son of mine has returned. But simultaneously, there's an older brother who, who's never left, never rebelled, never, never squandered the family fortune. And as everything's unwinding in the positivity and the celebration of the prodigal son, the older brother is getting more and more and more frustrated and angry and resentful and jealous. And part of the tension of Jesus' story I forget who I heard say it, but, but the, I th thought they said it very well when they said that the tension of Jesus' story is one of the hardest things to do in the Christian life is to cease to become the prodigal while also not becoming the self-righteous older brother. To somehow thread the needle of, of gratitude where, where we're not full of ourselves and self-righteous, which is one ditch within this rigor question, 
But at the same time, we're not sloppy and disengaged, which is the other ditch. And so how do we do this? Uh, Dallas Willard was the first that I know that used this phrase. It's become popular. It's become the title of a book and a podcast. I rarely hear anybody give him credit, but I'm pretty sure it started with him. And it's just go to this next slide. What's the next right thing God is asking of you? If, if the Christian life is supposed to be rigorous, if it's supposed to ask more of you than, than you could, could have ever known or anticipated, what if the good news is, but, but not today? Like it's just, what's the next right thing? It's the same way a girl becomes a college basketball player, isn't it? It's the same way you play the guitar like one of the best. It's the same way you have a great marriage. It's just the next right thing and the next right thing, and the next right thing. Advent, as we've talked about, is about a God who's gonna come back. And you could really focus on the judgment piece of that and the accountability piece of that. You could also focus on the opportunity to partner with piece of that. What if they all fit under this umbrella of just simply like, what's the next right thing that God is talking to you about? And what if the great saints, the Josephs, and the Marys, and the Moseses, and the Pauls. But what if their lives are nothing more than just that? The next right thing, the next right thing, and the next right thing. So as David and Deidre come up here, uh, they're gonna lead us through some more music. And I just, <clears throat> just wanna leave you with that question of what, what, what is the next right thing? And for some of you, uh, and this would be appropriate, I think, to the communion experience of this, it might just lead you into some confession right there, you and God. Just acknowledging like, okay, Lord, first I have to acknowledge this is sin and I've got to receive your forgiveness within all that. And then we're going to give you a chance to come receive communion. There's bread and wine over here and there's gluten-free as well and then there's wine and juice over here and we'll loop this way one row at a time and then... Uh, we'll jump up here, Kendall, jump back up here and lead us through it together so you can wait to take it. But it's this, it's this acknowledgement of, God, I want to do the next right thing. But part of what communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, they all, they all have a place in the lexicon. Part of what it is is a confession to God that this, this Jesus life, is, it's, it's not a self-help life. It's something that you fundamentally re- rely upon his power in you to work out. So I'd like to pray. These guys will lead us in a song. We'll give you a chance to grab your communion. You can sit with this question. God, uh, thanks. Thanks that we don't have to live in our brokenness and the shame of our sin, that in the tangibility of even these moments, we can confess and receive and your forgiveness. And God, thanks for communion and what we celebrate here, that, that you don't just call us to something, uh, but you empower us for it. And so God, would you take our everyday ordinary lives and while we could never think of ourselves as a Mary or a Joseph or a Paul or a Moses, would you just take our ordinary everyday lives and empower them to just do the next right thing? And God, would you take this bread and this wine and would you send your Holy Spirit and make it food that, that powers us, uh, our, this ordinary everyday bread and wine and make it Make it spiritual food that we can follow you better. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.